So work-life balance is a myth. That's my platform. That's I my agree. mission. And you and I are super aligned. Yeah, well, it's funny because, you know, we, we when we first started talking about this, I was saying that. Like, and you're like, yes, that's what my whole book's about. Welcome to Opolis Public Radio, the place we talk about tech innovation, blockchains, bufficorns, social evolution, the future of work, and other cognition-sparking morsels. Welcome to the first episode of Opolis Public Radio. Join us as Opolis founder John Paller talks with his friend Dana Look Arimoto about the future of work, why work-life balance doesn't exist, and Dana's new book, Stop Settling, Settle Smart compilation of her 23 years in corporate America as a leader in the staffing industry and strategist on the future of work. And with that, let's get into the show. We're on, huh? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Stop settling. Stop How's your smart. flight? Delayed. Yeah, Delayed. we know. We are under construction at SFO, so that's how that goes. Hey, you were saying that. Yeah. Whose swanky jacket is that? Mine. That's cool. I like that. You got a pocket square and everything. Yeah. What's well, the, you know, if you got to dress up the startup life, you know, you got the, you got to have the t-shirt. That's awesome. And yeah, then you just throw on a sweater. Where's my Opolis shirt? Uh, we can see if we can find you one. Don't here. you guys want me like sporting your wear out there? <clears throat> we can get you. We can hook you up. Hook Don't me worry. up. He's got the old school one on. You see that? I want the vintage. That's like full blown vintage right there. I want full blown vintage. Like, really to <laughs> that was literally like. There were three of those made. <laughs> I'm a vintage kind of a gal. Oh, okay. Yeah, I am actually. So, what do you want to talk about? Um, work life integration. Yeah, let's do that. All right. So. You didn't coin that, did you? No. Who did, you know? Uh, ironically, one of the first people in public domain to talk about it was Jeff Bezos, which is freaking hilarious. That's funny. Yeah. Because that's BS. It's an oxymoron, yeah. We, we probably won't put that out on social media, though. It might just be oxy, or maybe just moron. Oh. Or maybe oxy would help. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? That is sort of funny, though. Yeah, it's good stuff. So work-life balance is a myth. That's my platform. That's oh, my I agree. Mission and you and I are super aligned. Yeah, well, it's funny because you know we we when we first started talking about this, I was saying that like, and you're like, yes, that's what my whole book's about. Isn't that so funny? And so I wrote this book, and the rest is history. So now I'm on a mission with a method and a mindset and a movement to get companies and people to match up in terms of what they really want, which takes work-life integration and no more of this work-life balance stuff. So imagine this, right? You're a hamster in a wheel and you're running a sprint inside of a marathon and you're balancing on a teeter-totter. How's that sound? Um, it sounds like my life sometimes. Yeah. And employees feel that way all the time. Yeah, exactly. So how do we bridge that and get the conversation to happen about conscious trade-offs. So give us give us a few highlights then. So if I was if I'm a you know rank and file type and I'm working 50 hours a week, I've got three kids with ballet and soccer and lacrosse mm-hmm. and I've got to do other things in the community and things for my family and everything else. Like, what are the what are the major pillars of what you advocate here? That you can't have it all by doing it all at one time. Something's got to give. 
So the prioritization has to happen and people aren't having those conversations at work. They're barely having them at home or even within their own self. So priorities, you know, you get, you know, entrepreneurs especially are like work, 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 right? But how do you balance the priorities then? Well, first of all, you guys aren't getting enough sleep. Okay, and like being prideful about waking up at 2 a.m. like Elon Musk to go to work (laughs) sets the tone for your entire company that we expect you all to get up at 2 a.m. also and not get paid for it. And let's just go ahead and all get sick. It's a good thing we don't do that here. Okay, excellent. We don't. Does does anybody think that we do that here? (laughs) I don't think we do that here. I wake up at 6 a.m. Not, not because I tell you to. <laughs> Ty, Tyus might tell you to. So that's the first piece. And then the second piece is making agreements on the trade-offs. So you make those agreements at home and with your family and your best friend and your partner and with your boss and your coworkers. So what happened to job sharing? What happened to covering each other? Like what if you do have ballet? with your daughter and you really want to go and it's your company and you're like I'm out of here at four in the afternoon and everybody else is like cool let's cover for John and then maybe the next week someone's like you know what I'm really having an issue every morning this week with carpool and John's like hey let me back you up you go drive carpool it's, it's not a big deal like we back each other up right well, it seems like some of this comes to us naturally but it, it, it's not as common as maybe we might want it to be it's, yeah. It seems like the the fallout of most of this is like burnout. It's people just they they lose interest in their work. They <clears throat> you know the the whole equilibrium of their lives just falls apart. And even for people who do some of this well, it it's still a major challenge to balance it all. Yeah, so that's the issue is that people are not honest with themselves. They're still believing they can be a type A super achieving superpower person and get it all done at one time. And then people believe, because of some of the public figures in public domain, that you literally can have it all. How many of us would actually tell our kids that? You can have it all if you do it all and heavy lift at one time. I don't think I would ever say that. Yeah. I think you can eventually get to a place where you feel very fulfilled in the things that you're doing. Right. But, like, having it all would sort of assume that there's, you know, there's no problems, there's no fires, everything's sort of working, and it, it just it's just sort of like you get it to a, a optimal cruise control at 110 miles an hour, and yeah. it just it works, and I just I've never experienced that. Yeah, life happens. Other things happen, too, like things that start with S. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. That yeah. f- that four letter word. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know that word. Ship. <laughs> then you're shipwrecked. Yeah, ship happens. Ship happens every day. <laughs> so how do we start to change the dynamic so that people not only know they have a choice, but that they make the choice consciously so that it doesn't happen to them? In my book, I talk about, and it's not funny, but it seems funny now. How many pneumonias does it take before you decide to settle smart? That was my story. How about you? How many did it take you? Uh, once or twice a year, every other year, sometimes every year, for about eight years. Oof. Yeah, I'm slow. I'm slow to learn. Stubborn. Yeah. People are stubborn, I think. They like routine, even if it's negative. Like, they like what they know. And even subconsciously, it's it's like, well, this is just what happens, you know, it's... 
the price you pay. It's the price you pay to have what you want, and they don't even get what they want half the time. That's the big question. What is it that you really want? So that's the methodology in the quiz that I've Do you watched. think most people don't know what they want? I don't even think most people, and I've interviewed a lot of people about and this. And this isn't judgmental, by the yeah. way. This is just, just sort of yeah. observing. Do you think that most people even know what they want? When I ask the question, either on my quiz, <laughs> so, you know, from an automated perspective or face-to-face in these conversations or when I'm running team exercises or working with leader teams, they've never even stopped to think to ask themselves that question. And it's not like their employer said, what is it, John, that you really want when you come to work here at Opolis? Well, work's become very commoditized and task-oriented. It's it's no longer about, um, like like, a profession or a trade. You know, it's like, well, I'm paying you to do a set of tasks, like a checklist. And then you, it, it's, it's sort of like the office space meme. Where it's like, well, you know, I do just enough work just not to get fired, right? Because it's a means to an end. We've created work as a means to an end. It's no longer part of the human experience. It's sort of the, the thing that helps fuel the real human experience. But it's really not, though. And what in the nineteen hundred early nineteen hundreds, eighty eight percent of people were self employed. So like, there wasn't anybody telling you what you had to do. You had to like go out and figure what holes were in your community where you could add value, what trades were, you know, gonna pay well, and you had to hone a craft. You had to you had to like learn how to do something. And now it's just like people don't even like, I mean, they go spend fifty, hundred thousand dollars on college and they don't even know what they want to do. We talk about the gig economy together all the time. I just watched a documentary on the plane here, ironically, on the future of work. What was it called? Uh, The future of work. And it was produced by uh, Vice News. Phenomenal piece. And they talked about robots and automation and machine learning and jobs going away and jobs being creative. Justin and I talk about this all the time. It was a fabulous documentary. Um, But yet it, it sort of touched on what you're saying, which is before it was about survival and now it's actually more about thriving. But people are almost afraid to thrive. They feel like if they come off the hamster wheel, something will actually break and fall apart. Well, do you, do you feel like, um, oh, what, do you, well, what do you feel the major reason for this aversion is? Like, why do they think that? I mean, is it real that if they get off the hamster wheel that somehow something's not going to work? Like, I mean, I had to learn that one. Like, you can't work 80 hours a week and expect to function after a certain amount of time. You just can't. Like, you have to get rest. You have to, like, reset, however you do that, right? Meditation, prayer work. Yeah. vacations, just weekends, like whatever. I mean, what do you think the aversion is? Because it seems like it seems like a massive case of autopilot to me. It is a massive case of autopilot. I agree with you so much. And it's interesting because in this documentary, they talked about needing a vacation from work and what would the world be like if work felt like, not a vacation. We, we don't want to get Pollyanna and be all weird and kumbaya, but like what if your work was your passion? the way it is for you, the way it is for me, mm-hmm. after all our lessons and hitting our head and hitting reset. Oh, it's hard. It Well, excuse the, it's kind of terrible sometimes, you know, like, I'm not trying to be negative, but like, it's painful, but like, you wouldn't trade it. Like, when you're pursuing a passion, it doesn't feel like work. 
and like I was watching this um, thing on uh, YouTube or somewhere the other day about what Gary Vee was talking about you know Gary Vaynerchuk so he's like um, I hate Fridays because he's like I, you know everybody else is looking forward to Fridays when he's like when you do what you love when you're actually in your groove and like when you're not talking to work people but you're just talking to people about things that are important to you that happen to be commercial it's not work and you don't you don't think about it like that you don't compartmentalize your sort of life and and your conversations and the people that you talk to in those categories right because it's not it's not about that and then when the weekends i kind of feel like this like when the weekends come around it's like man and actually, I do. There's some people I do talk to on weekends that we kind of do life together, I guess you could say. But it's not a, it's not about the work, although it, it kind of it's related. So it, it feels very integrated. It is integrated. Yeah, because it's it's just my life. It's not like I don't have a job. Right. Like I'm actually unemployable. I think. <laughs> that's debatable. That I, that's for another segment. Maybe, <laughs> but like I feel like having. Well, what I mean by that is having that sort of highly structured compartmentalized role where it starts and ends in a day and I shut off my work brain to go home brain, like I don't know that I could do that. See, that's the danger zone, that compartmentalization. And I coach a lot of executives who still feel like that's the only way to survive, let alone thrive. They have to compartmentalize. They have to wear a mask at work. They have to not be their full authentic self. They have to take some mask off on the way home, put a mask on when they get to work or vice versa. Well, that just feels inauthentic to me. That's what's worked so far. That's what they've been taught. That's what their heroes and mentors are doing. Yeah. Or at least it seems that way. Do we all need a major life event like an Ariana Huffington, you hit your head on the glass coffee table? Oh, I need to sleep. Bless her for her scientific work and sleep study and sleep, you know, work sure. and coming out with a book that teaches but, us but that most you, of us have to sleep. Right, but but don't you think that most of the learning comes from those kinds of maybe almost like pivotal moments, those rites of passage moments where it's like you know I've hit a threshold, you know it's it's call it a rock bottom moment. Like, isn't that a, kind of a good thing in some ways? I mean, not that you want to wish this stuff on people, but like. When you talk to people who have had these moments who have made the pivot to yeah. the right direction, they'll tell you that it's the best experience that they've ever had. So why wouldn't we want more people to have the experience but choose the right way, right? Like choose the, the path to the better, their better selves, right? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't we want that? We want that. And yet when you talk to most leaders, especially in the demographic I spend a lot of time with, let's say 35 to 60-year-olds, they wait until that hit the wall moment happens to make the shift and then they evangelize the shift with everyone they know. When you talk to a super type A overachieving, supposedly killing it, very successful, define success, right? Because that's a whole other segment we could record on definitions of that's success. That's a moving target. It is. I, it's, I like it's, Ralph com- Waldo Emerson's poem on success. but It's completely subjective. So when you say to an executive, okay, great, that's your way, you can learn the hard way, and then we can do this work-life integration work, and I can actually show you how to do it for yourself and your team and your employees and have more sustainability, loyalty, engagement. What would you tell your children, if they have children, about wanting them to have to hit the wall before they make the shift? And then their whole perspective changes. Oh, I wouldn't want that for my kids. Well, if, well, yeah, of course. But we wouldn't want that for 
you don't want anybody to experience pain necessarily, but I think there is a reality for people. Let's say successful entrepreneurs know what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. The ones who have kids that are older than my kids, my kids are young, but like the ones who have kids who I know who have really mentored their children correctly, they don't give them a lot of money, they put them out on their own, they gotta earn, they gotta learn, and they gotta like skin their knees and bump their elbows just like everybody else. Why? Because their parents know that that's the only way they'll learn, by doing. Did you just call me old? Because you know my kids are older. <laughs> no, I wasn't even talking about you. Well, let's <clears throat> talk about me for a minute. So for the first, I don't know, 15 years of my 19-year-old daughter's life, mm-hmm. I was not that parent. I was really overprotective, overly worrying, trying to shelter so that Protect my- her from the woes of the world. Yeah, I didn't want her to feel the pain. Except you're teeing her up for a lot of trauma later and we're dealing with it now yeah my younger daughter got the more enlightened mom as i was coming through my own evolution of what i wanted for my life the huffington moment and corporate defection and well just your moment i mean your moments of enlightenment and yeah uh-huh. Yeah. So like, she's, oh, this isn't what it's all about. Yeah, so she operates very differently. Granted, as we all know, if we have kids or nieces or we're big brothers, big sisters, we volunteer. Anyone who works with kids in any way, you know every kid's different, just like every adult is different. Sure. Uh, but she sees a very different mom, and her operating system for herself is much more authentic, much more unapologetic. And she makes trade-offs that are conscious, and she doesn't give a rip what people think. It's pretty refreshing. She's intense. Like when I went out on my own three years ago, she said, it's about time you practice what you preach. That's what she said. And it is. It's true. It's, it's important to have integrity. She called it. And, you were, and she wasn't wrong. And I didn't, I didn't argue. I was like, yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the support. And I talk about my kids a lot because it keeps it real. And my kids have seen me in different contexts. They've seen me run companies. They've seen me give talks out in public. They've seen me run a business. They hear me coach sometimes. Don't worry, any of my clients, I'm not trying to freak you out. Like, they don't hear the nuance. But they can hear a lot of talking in my office because noise carries. And so they kind of get a vibe now of what my life is like today versus what it used to be like when I was trying to keep every ball in the air. Single mom, trying to crusade, run founders companies, grow them, sell them, help everybody to develop and grow as a person and try to build people's careers. There was very little time for me. I was last. How'd you fix it? Or how are you fixing it actively? It's like a Coldplay (laughs) song. (laughs) I need to fix it. Uh, Work in progress. Trade-offs. So there are certain things I won't compromise on any longer. I know what my deal breakers are. I need time for myself to read every night. I'm a voracious reader. I need time to exercise. I love to walk my dogs. I go to Zumba. I go to cardio jazz. But I have to do something that's in my body a couple of times a week. I need to walk my dogs. I need to pet my dogs. Like, there are certain things I just won't give up anymore that before I thought had to come last. And I thought that was the expectation. I was shooting myself to death, you know? Shooting. I should have, should have, should have, should I should do this, should do this, should do this. The, the never-ending list of stuff. So what, what got you to the point where you were able to actually let it go? Like, release it. 
and be cool with it. Because some people have like this neurosis about it, like they're 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 just the anxiety of like letting something go. It's like the end of the world, you know. They can, they can't handle the emotions of it. Because it, it is for for some people, it's really hard to let it go. I don't I don't personally have that problem because like I've gotten to a place where it's like I can see where the value is in certain things. I understand priorities. So like if I say no to something, it's just like, I just don't think about it anymore. That's a hard one for me still. I still work on saying no when I mean no and not saying yes when I mean no. And sometimes I hear myself and yes comes out de facto like autopilot. I'm like, who just said You're yes? not a recovering people pleaser or anything, Oh, I don't know. Wait, let me drink this beautiful. <laughs> I, already, I, already, I already killed mine. I'm feeling pretty good right now. Brought to you by Colorado. Can I go to the whiteboard? Yeah. Sure. Can I unpack the five facets and then we can like have a little picture and then we can probably wrap this up. This is great. Cool. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah? Can we, out, brother. can we pretend I'm doing a little training? Or we can do it right here. Get some <laughs> get some like heads in here. Yeah. Is that weird? Can. No. Okay. Faux heads. I love colors. Oh, those aren't good. Oh my god. Do you know what the word "ire" means in Latin? Ire? No. To grow. Serent. Venture and PE capital. They're not venture. They're PE. P. Sorry. Ire. To grow. That is their mantra. Because green things grow. (laughs) Sow your seeds. I want, Is this well, for lighting purposes? Oh, no, just sound. Oh, that's cool. Uh, okay. We can move it over, too. So, uh, Yeah, do that panel right there. Yeah, I can do this panel. Let's yeah, see. yeah. So, the stop settling spectrum. What is it? It's a very simple quiz. This is the methodology, and it's a five-point scale. It's a miracle I used to be head of training and development for a company, because look at that handwriting, and yet I do stand-up training all the time. I'm impressed you can write it all anymore. Uh, yeah, exactly right. You should see, I know, you should see the it? handwriting. It's hieroglyphics. <laughs> so there's a current state and a desired State that I've identified over time. And thousands of people now have taken this quiz. And it was launched because I originally used to ask all my employees when I'd come into a new organization or run a company, I would say, what is it that you really want? And they'd look at me like I had three heads. I was like, that's too hard. Okay, let's back it up. If you had an endless bucket of money and a magic wand, what's the one thing you'd start and the one thing you'd stop right now today? And most people would say, do you mean personal or professional? And I'd say, Yes. Or they'd say, do you mean work or life? And when they said or life, I filed it. And I was like, that's, that doesn't feel right. Like, wait, isn't work a subset of life? And I started drawing a pie chart. And I was like, that is not that engaging for people to look at a pie chart. Because I didn't want to just talk to business people, even though that is my jam. Like, I want to talk to people regardless if they're a corporation or not. And so I thought about what if they could identify their current and desired state across five facets? And in fact, they could use the same five-point scale. And what the five-point scale is, 
you're either never settling, or you are over here on one, you are always settling, or you're kind of in between. You're frequently settling, you're neutral, you're infrequently settling. And then I ask it across these five facets that have been identified in the stop settling spectrum so that there's this understanding that you have five areas of your life that we all share universally. Regardless of where you live, regardless of socioeconomic background, we all share the same five facets. And those are career, however you define that. And for stay-at-home moms, hats off. I, I, I could never have done that job. That's where outsourcing came in for me. I had a nanny for 11 years while I was traveling and running companies and trying to be a single mom, doing a very average job of it. So however you define career for yourself or freelance work or gig work or maybe who knows, you're like a perpetual student, however you define career. And then we all also have to think about our generations, which is our family. And then our circle, which is our friends. However you define friends. Some of us have two friends. That's cool. You go to Europe and they're like, who has 17 best friends? Like, it's very American. Other people are like, I have tons of friends. And a lot of this has to do with strengths and the way you're wired. And there's no right or wrong, good or bad. People, you know, can choose whatever friend kinds of groupings they want. In the book, I talk about circles of friends, the very tight-knit ones, the next circle, the acquaintances, and how you spend your time and get your joy and productivity and value has a lot to do with these facets of your life. And then we have society. Are you an activist? Are you giving back? Are you going to church? Are you volunteering at your kid's theater? Again, however you define these, I left them broad so people could identify for themselves in these groupings. And then the final one is vitality. And you don't have to run marathons to be vital. Like, petting my dogs every morning is part of my vitality. People are like, what is your meditation practice? I'm like, epic fail. I've tried everything. I'm working on Insight Timer right now. We'll see how that goes. Like, singing bowls seem to work because I'm highly auditory. But I pet my dogs every morning, and I have three rescues, and I, like, literally, it calms me down. Like, does it make me weird? Maybe, but I don't care. That's what works for me. And I talked about having time for myself and reading and having some exercise time and integrating time with my dogs and walking. And sometimes I'm talking into a voice recorder. While I was writing this book, I was literally talking into a voice recorder like a lunatic. Not while driving, but while walking the dogs all the time. So I'm integrating the way I operate my life plan. And these facets are all a part of it. And we spend a lot of time in some of these and none in others. So the questions I like to ask here are, in your current state, are you always settling, never settling, or somewhere in between in career, in generations, with your circle of friends, in society, with your own vitality, your health and welfare? And in your desired state, if you had that endless bucket of money and magic wand? You have to have both because otherwise people put limits on it. They're like, no one's ever asked me something so open-ended. I'm like, okay, it's just, it's just for fun. But it's very telling. When you take the limits off of people, they will say, well, in my desired state, I would actually settle a little more in career. I wouldn't spend so much time. I'd spend more time with my kids or I would volunteer more. I had one woman in a class I was teaching for women returning to work. And these were high-achieving, highly-credentialed women who took a career pause for whatever reason. It wasn't always children, by the way, but for whatever reason. And now they're getting back into the workforce, and they are assets waiting to be had. 
and we have shortages everywhere. I'm in Silicon Valley, for goodness sakes, and these women are having a hard time breaking back in. Just like people coming out of the military, the transferable skills are really tough, and so really trying to help people career map and career path. And one woman who's like a PhD said, like, oh, like stood up in this class, like a classroom like this, but like 50 women. She stood up and she goes, oh my gosh, I gave up my gardening. I was like, okay. Like this huge aha. And she goes, my kids are now through college. They're grown and gone. We're empty nesters. I'm thinking about going back to work. I don't even really want to go back to work teaching. I just want to garden. And of course, you know, if you can handle that financially, and it's your love and passion, go nuts, lady. Spend 80 hours a week gardening if that's your joy and your passion, and you can afford it. So this stuff is situational and relative. I don't like to ever pretend that's not true, because that would be very dishonoring to the human existence. We have things we have to take care of. We need money, most of us. And we have other basic needs. But like, if you were to choose what you really wanted to do with your time, what would that look like? And she just never thought to ask herself. And it was kind of cute and funny because then she was a little pissed at her husband. She's like, how come he never asks me? I was like, well, you know, that's above my pay grade. I don't know. <sighs> Go home and share this quiz with your husband and your grown kids who are now, you know, out in the world and with other people and have conversations in the workplace about what people have and what they want. And if you can ever afford to give it to somebody, you can have a little more time for vitality. You can have a little more time for friends. You can have a little more time for your career and your family's willing to make a trade-off. I'm not going to every ballet recital, but every big show I will definitely go to. Two big shows a year, I'm there. Every recital, like once a quarter, maybe you aren't able to commit to that and you have a trade-off conversation with your kids. So that's the whole mission here of this methodology, shifting your mindset, and then joining the movement by making the shift to go for what it is that you really desire, which starts with awareness of knowing what it is that you really want and where you're spending time that you may not be deriving joy or value from. What are the frictions that you see with trade-off agreements? Yeah, there's a, that's a good question. There are a lot of frictions with trade-off agreements because they aren't usually agreements. It's usually someone saying, I finally figured it out. I am gardening. And the husband might say, well, does that mean you don't make dinner anymore? And she's like, I'm not making dinner. She like has her Norma Ray moment, like, I'm not going to be in this union. But it's more about like, I want to garden more, but I know you love me making dinner. I don't mind making dinner. So how about I'll make dinner three nights a week and you make dinner two nights. It's about the agreements and the trade-offs you make with one another once you decide where you want to make the trade-offs for yourself. It's about alignment. It's not about, like, you come to my way of thinking or I'll come to your way of thinking, and there's no middle. It's always finding the middle. Interesting. Well, thank you, Dad. <laughs> That's awesome. It's like no one's in the room when I talk about this shit. It gets really weird because I'm, like, in some, I don't know, bubble. You're thank in, you. You're in the zone. It makes perfect. <laughs> well, I also talk about this a lot on stages. Oh, I know you do. But there's no you whiteboard. And talk about, you, and I, you and I talk about this a lot, too. Oh, I'm hot. How much have we talked about this? Well, you're in the book. I mean, yeah, that's true. I am. And there aren't that many people in the book. I know. I'm honored. And you know, the, the one guy in the book that was like kind of a hero for me that I never got to meet yeah, died. He, he died. Yeah. And you mentioned that. Yeah. Netta Porter. Netta Portier, depending on where you're from. Mark Seba. Cool. Well, you got to probably jump in a car. Oh, shoot. Um, All right, we did it. Opolis' first podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Leave us a rating and subscribe to stay in the loop for our next one.